Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. And tonight we're going to talk about unnecessary romance subplots and token love interests. Now this has come up again um, recently because of Doctor Strange and we came across an article in The Guardian which uh, talked about how you know these women, especially in these comic book, car- uh, comic book films, keep having absolutely nothing to do. One of the problems that we have in the, all these films is that when a romance element is added to a story that, first of all, the, the romance is completely unnecessary and secondly, that uh, particularly for women... These, it it's kind of becomes the token female character for the story is added on just as a love interest but has nothing to do with the plot and has no impact whatsoever on sort of the progression of the story. Well, I really like that article you linked to, Megan, um, in the Huffington Post by Elizabeth Vale. And she's a lady who obviously has reviewed young adult fiction and also romance fiction. And she makes the very good point that romance is in itself a genre. And I mean, I'm an editor for Romance Imprint and I love romance and it's all very character driven and it's all about the emotions and drawing two characters and spending a lot of time looking at their internal conflicts and whilst you can put that into a genre piece you've also then got to try and make room for all the other plots so if it's science fiction and dystopian you've got to then build in all the other elements of it uh, the world building and the, the references and all the science and things like that but it's you're right that it's shoehorned in in a lot of places where honestly just you know a guy and a girl working together would be fine do they really need to be romantic and people put that in and the girl sometimes often ends up just being you know a tag along almost just because they want to put this romance element in when actually they should go does it really need romance or should I leave the romance to the romance writers you know I really liked that article for the same reason the fact that she actually came at it from saying well you know, look at romance as a genre. Romance is a genre. It's actually very, it's quite complicated. It's very character driven. The authors of successful romance novels clearly spend a lot of time um, character building and introducing that character to the audience. So to to have it shoehorned into a, a different genre is a real problem. And actually, it's um, it doesn't reflect well on, on you know, the idea of romance novels, which is terrible, really, because actually, you know, they, they are a very valid genre and a romance done well um, is is a pleasure to read. Um, so it does not only, you know, do the, this this kind of shoehorning in of, of love interest, not only does that do a disservice a genre, but it also does a disservice to the, the romance. What's interesting, um, one of my favourite time-wasting websites is TV Tropes. I, I just get lost on it and, <laughs> and never come out. Um, but their descri- description of token romance talks about how um, this, especially in films, that this is about Hollywood wanting to capture the biggest audience and that in doing that, you know, romance is kind of, it, it opens up to a bigger target audience than, say, you know, just an action film would because, you know, there's this, I mean, still that pervasive idea that women don't like action films. Well, uh, they've not met me, clearly, because uh, <laughs> I love a good action film and I could take or leave the romance. But it, it's interesting that this idea still pervades the industry because I, I mean I personally have never ever thought oh well it's this different kind of genre being a film or a book but I'm you know I, I think I'd, I'd prefer to read it or go to see it if it had a, a romance what about you guys uh well I was just going to say that that I have noticed um 
when I speak to people, I would come down on the same side as you that actually that, that I've met very few women who are, you know, would say that a romance is the kind of be all and end all that they would actually not buy or read or, or watch a film, you know, if, if it didn't have romance. But I did see um, on Goodreads that bastion of quality that is goodreads uh somebody was asking a question about a book that said in fact it might be my book god i don't even know i usually don't stay away from things like that but they said oh does this book have a romance in it as in if it doesn't i'm not going to bother reading it and that was a woman who'd asked that and i thought well you know that's the only time okay it's one one example but i was thinking you know that if if she's asked that question there must be other people out there who share her views and would actually prioritize books with romance in them over ones that that didn't have romance um, which I was a bit surprised about frankly because i think that you know for me that the most important thing about a book is the um the, the themes discussed and the compellingness of the story well, when I do my book reviews, particularly when I do horror reviews for Ginger Nuts of Horror, one of the things I look at is whether people coming from another genre would enjoy it. Um, I forget the, the name of the book, but there was one where I kind of went, well, if you already like romance or you've got a girlfriend who likes romance and you'd like to try and introduce her to a bit of horror, you might like to try this book because it's got a big dollop of, horror, a big dollop of romance in it and also some horror. So sometimes having romance can be a way of like a bit like Megan was saying with Hollywood is that you can get someone to read a book if you say it's got a strong romantic element when they might never normally touch science fiction or horror or fantasy. And that could be a draw for some people and probably stereotypically women, I guess. Uh, I don't know if there are any guys out there who uh, go, oh, wow, romance, I'm totally picking that up, which is great and fantastic. You know, and that's that's equally valid. It's it's what you get out of a book and what you enjoy reading. And I think when I said earlier about shoehorning it into a book and, you know, there's lots to get in in the science fiction novel, it's, I think romance has its place in any novel, but it just has to be handled correctly. And I think it can add to it, um, can add to the story overall, but not, I wouldn't necessarily go, oh, wow, it's science fiction with extra romance. I'm totally getting that. Um, but I think it would, I don't know if it would be a draw for me or not i tell you one thing that isn't a draw, and it's moving away slightly from the books here, is when you find um, a movie of a book that you really like and you find that it's got added romance in it and you all know, well, maybe Megan doesn't know what we're talking about with Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Uh, did you see them, Megan, with your uh, distaste for the books? I did see them. My ass fell asleep in all three of The Hobbit films and they were <laughs> so boring. Uh, but yeah, so I imagine you're talking about Killy and Toriel and Toriel's not even canon from what I understand. Oh, God, don't get me started at all. <laughs> I mean, what a pointless character. I've actually written in my notes for this episode, the only one of the only notes I've actually written is pointless Toriel, <laughs> <laughs> which it I, I know I think it might be the Aiden Turner effect. Well, I call the Aiden Turner effect after his debut as Poldark, who we all know Poldark is very hot and there are lots of gratuitous scything scenes where he can take his shirt off and it's all great. Um, yes, but, yes, you it know, is great. <laughs> <laughs> I, it is great, and I, I almost think that Peter Jackson has become a victim of the Aiden Turner effect. That it's you know, oh God, we've got Aiden Turner, we're going to have to get some kind of hot, smoky romance going here. But I mean, to put it in a book like The Hobbit is just bizarrely inappropriate. And what's even more appropriate is to have the interspecies romance as well. I mean, Tolkien would be turning in his grave. And it's not just that, it's the fact that it's so completely misplaced. It's, the story is not about, uh, you know, 
this one dwarf it's about Bilbo and his quest <laughs> and his adventure you know it's it's um I thought it was just pretty cheap shot really yeah it's well, also quite interesting that Killy is like easily 10 times hotter than all the other dwarfs I know I, it, it's it's very odd <laughs> I, he's just too hot for that role. Clearly, he should not have been cast as as because I, I just think of him as the hot dwarf now. But at least you know because the others had prosthetics on their faces and things like that, and and they just left Aidan Turner looking as hot as ever. Beautiful. Like, why? <laughs> it would right, have been a crime to come I'm face have, up. I'm going to have to weigh in and contradict you on everything here. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Uh, first of all, I like your idea of the Aiden Turner effect, but actually, um, Poldark started 2015, and the first Hobbit film I think was released in 2012. Yeah, I know, um, but it was—he's it, just following on. Like, there's a—I mean, I'm talking about des- going back to desperate romantics here. I mean, Aiden Turner's been around for a while, and it's just been snowballing. But <laughs> I quite. Oh, oh, yeah, and just to, to contradict you on that, Keeley is clearly not the hottest dwarf in there. It is clearly Rich Armitage's Thorin that is oh, far and above the better. Mm, okay, mm. Gauntlet Throne <laughs> is hot. Yes, he is hot. Yes, I probably would go for Thorin. To be honest, if you if your question was, would you go and see a film because it's got romance in it, I'd kind of give. Yeah, it's like, would you go and see a film if it's got Rich Dar? Yes, yes. You don't even need to finish the sentence. Yes, I will go see it. Exiled Prince. <laughs> But I actually, and I'll probably get a lot of abuse for this, but I quite like the Toriel and Keeley idea. And I I do feel it it wasn't necessarily right for The Hobbit. And I, in a weird way, it could have been a little mini film all on its own. And I like the interspecies thing um, because I have a, a big thing about the way Hollywood portrays male and female um, and sort of, how beautiful people always end up together and these people always end up together. And, and I quite like the fact that you had this, this interspecies kind of thing and like going, okay, it, it is possible. And I, I appreciate, sorry, spoilers here. I appreciate that one of them doesn't survive and therefore technically it isn't possible, but I did quite like the idea that they've clearly gone and said, well, we want to put romance in and we want to do it in this way. I just don't necessarily think it was a good idea to put romance in the Hobbit at all, but if they were going to, I did prefer it. Um, certainly to the Lord of the Rings where they just bigged up Arwen. That was kind of a a bit weird. And I think the worst thing about that was they bigged up Arwen and she still did pretty much bugger all. (laughs) Well, she doesn't in the book, really, so... I know, but if you were going to to big her up, wouldn't you, you know, give her a proper positive role? And she takes over the role... Oh, no, I'm glad they didn't. I was like, whoa, too much Arwen already. You know, back off, girl. (laughs) I'm real talking purist. (laughs) Well, shall I move it on then to another book and another film that was mentioned in one of the um, one of the articles that Megan sent around? I think it was the Screen Rant one about unnecessary romantic subplots and the Arthur Dent and the Trillion subplot in the film with um, oh the Hobbit guy again, Martin Martin Freeman Freeman Martin Freeman. Uh, I, that just annoyed me completely because I love the books and I love the radio series of the um, of the Hitchhiker's Guide, and I just kind of went. But it works so beautifully without the need for this this romance. Why have you put it in? There is no reason to put it in at all. I mean, I don't know if you guys have either read the books or seen the films, but it just mm-hmm. it irritated me, and particularly the bit with the um, perspective gun, which I thought was fantastic and really good. And then they turned it into a whole issue about men, uh, women against men and how women were suffering all this stuff that men couldn't possibly understand. And it was just like, you've just taken Douglas Adams' work and just 
thrown it through a mangle effectively and something has come out the other side that is completely unrecognisable. I was just it completely spoiled the film for me. So if someone said to me, would you like to go and see The Hitchhiker's Guide with Extra Romance? Then the answer would be no. No, thank you. Leave that alone. Well, going back to the idea of, um, you know, adding romance to a genre that, uh, you know, you might want to get someone else into who's who's not really into those kinds of films. One of my favourite examples of having a, a female character who is the love interest but is also a crucial to the plot and is, you know, has agency, has things to do, uh, is the Terminator. So the first Terminator, obviously, is basically a slasher film. And it's not really, you know, you don't sit there and say, oh, let's go to a slasher film. It's going to be, you know, an incredible romance. But at the end of the day, it actually, re- it is. It's a beautiful romance. And it's, am I going to be come off really weird saying that I think Terminator is a really romantic film? But... <laughs> But I do, and I think that's a really good example of that. And then when you have uh, the story move on in Terminator 2, you know, she's moved on from being the love interest, being, you know, the final girl and all those tropes from horror films and turned it into, you know, she's taken that and, and done something with that pain and with that experience. And I think that's a really good example of having romance in a different genre. Well, it's been years since I saw the first Terminator film, but I don't remember her being particularly proactive I mean feel, you obviously know it better than me so feel free to enlighten me as how she's a a greater love interest than, than you would normally get because I just remember I only have one memory of that film and that's her and Michael Bean at the end trying to hide from the Terminator before they make their last big stand um and she was a bit a bit whingy in that bit so, so say, like me yeah I mean she's definitely whingy but in terms of um so when we're talking about token romances so my um biggest issue is when say a female character is the the love interest and she then basically has no impact on the plot so if you know basically completely superfluous now Sarah Connor is crucial she's central to that plot the entire thing revolves around her really it's her story it's not um kyle's story it's not really the terminator story it's sarah connor's story and i would say that's what makes her different it doesn't mean that she necessarily is you know all gung-ho because i mean that's what she is in, in the second film but in the first one you know she's a normal girl thrown into a terrible situation and you know freaking out and i kind of can get on board with that idea um, but in terms of, you know, how the fact that that character is crucial to that plot and she's definitely not the token woman, she is the woman, she is the story. That's very true, although she does get saved by the guy at the end, doesn't she? Um, no, at the end she saves herself. Does she? Ah, then I have to rewatch this film. <laughs> this is clearly not the uh, the Terminator that I remember, I shall have to rewatch it. Well, yeah, I mean, he, he does protect her for a lot of it. And then uh, by the end, she's all that's left. <laughs> but do you not think it's interesting that she gets more kick-ass once she doesn't have a bloke around, though? I don't know about that. I think it's a, a natural progression for the character, which is, again, why I like it. You know, you've got this uh, this woman. I mean, ma- imagine if you'd gone on to the second in, um, second version of the story where she just was still terrified and still pathetic nobody would like her but the fact that she's gone okay this has happened to me I need to learn from this and even at the, you know you see that transformation by the end of Terminator as well she's become mm. much harder and she's she's learning to take control of her life and learning to sort of protect herself and 
you know, that's what makes her a good character. Excellent. No, I do actually, you know, you mentioned it. I do remember the last scenes where she's filling up with gas and drives off and it is a very different vibe to the, uh, the Sarah Con you've had throughout the rest of the series. So, yeah, you're quite right. I shall have to rewatch that. <laughs> but if we're talking about um, women who's, who were sort of the main protagonists and whether or not they are still the love interests, I wonder what you guys thought of The Princess Bride. I was trying to decide, having watched it millions of times, who was the love interest in that? Was it The Princess Bride or was it Wesley? Who counts as the love interest and who counts as the main protagonist? And I genuinely couldn't decide which way around it was. Mm, that's it's interesting. Her, it's her story and she's not massively proactive and does get saved and everything. But he also has a very minor role because she's more key. She's more central to it all, as, as Megan was saying about Sarah Connor, which made me think of it. And she's the titular character. Yeah, exactly. Again, then that's that's an example of a good situation where you have you don't have any token love interests so that's that's a good example so mm. you know because the, the thing is we can you can have male token love interests as well just because um you know we we see this you know a lot in say you know at the moment comic book films where it's it's the woman who just kind of is there because we kind of need a woman I guess, and they just sort of add one in there and give her absolutely nothing to do, which personally I found was one of the worst parts of Thor 2. It's just Natalie Foster, uh, Natalie Portman, um, Jane Foster. Uh, she had nothing to do. She was completely superfluous and just... Uh, there was just no point to having her in that film. Other yeah, than the, the fact only reason I like that film is, is Loki. Well, <laughs> so... <yeah. laughs> it's the only reason any of us like that film. Um... <laughs> But, you know, so that's kind of the the bad example. But you can have that for men as well. You can have uh, token male characters, uh, token male love interests. Um, but when it comes to, you know, these examples that we, we're giving, like Princess Bride, there is romance in that. And it's, you know, I guess we class it as fantasy. So we've got fantasy with romance. But that isn't shoehorned in. That, that is a perfectly, you know, legitimate romance subplot within that story. Mm. In fact, I think I'd call it a fantasy romance, actually, because yeah. that's, mm. that is what it is. It's not epic fantasy, particularly. It's it is a it is a story. The love story between Buttercup and Wesley is the main plot line. Yeah, uh, it just happens to be set in a fantasy world. Um, so yeah, it's a perfect fusion of the two genres. And I'd uh, say... yet more ways in which the Princess Bride is perfect. <laughs> Another example of that would also be in the 80s, but not, uh, but a more serious one would be Ladyhawk, I think. <gasps> Ladyhawk! Oh, I, I love Ladyhawk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great, great soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So 80s. It is, it's so 80s. <laughs> it's like insta 80s transport. It's like almost like time traveling. <laughs> Oh, it's just it's just a great story, and yeah, again, I think that's probably another perfect fusion of of, of romantic fantasy um, that you know it balances the two genres really quite cleverly. Uh, yeah, really, really excellent example. I was thinking about how you know when we talk about sort of writing stories, obviously we want to, and especially for for our conversation, which is in speculative fiction, but in terms of having romance in stories and grounding those in realism. The idea that we have romance in our life, obviously, is fairly universal, even if uh, it's been a while for me. Um, (laughs) You're not alone. (laughs) So, um, 
but I was thinking, so where you have sort of a standalone film or a standalone novel, say, it's very, uh, it's completely normal that you would sort of omit characters that you aren't central to the plot. But when it comes to series, like comic book series, film, you know, series, TV series, and so on, um, especially, you know, given the, um, the conversation around comic book films, which are adaptations, obviously, of, of comic books, which have these romances throughout them. In that instance, isn't it more realistic to have characters that might not be very important in certain sort of installments of that story because our lives are full of important people who may be peripheral at times or even completely absent so I'm just sort of putting it out there you know if say if you did have a romance and you had you know take Thor again so yeah fine Thor is in love with Jane Foster and maybe she was central to the first story in the second story she's not as important so should the writers just kind of leave her out and do a kind of Avengers thing where he just like looks at her picture and hopes she's okay? Or, you know, is it, is it kind of a fan service that they're adding these in? Mm. Any thoughts about this? <laughs> Probably, I'd say it's a fan service, really. I think he shouldn't have, um, they shouldn't have included her if her role was going to be so minute and unthought out, then it should probably have just had a glance at there, you know, oh, I wonder if she's okay. Because that's actually, in in my opinion, that's better than to do it so badly as to make her a kind of, you know, an empty character, considering she was so fundamental to the first film. It seems, you know, like actually it's almost like a reversal. You know, they, they went to such trouble to build her character up in the first film and then did a, you know, just dropped her in the second uh, which seems rather ridiculous. I mean, if that was the way it was going to go, if that was the story they were going to decide on, then it seems to me better just to say, well, point, you know, she doesn't play a huge role. I mean, our spouses, our partners, they don't always play a role in every single aspect of our lives. And that's just realistic. Um, so you don't see why it was... Um, it, the problem is, again, I think it just comes back to the fact that viewers like romance and, and maybe expect a few a certain... A certain element of it. Yeah, I was also thinking about Ant-Man. I don't know if either of you have seen it. Yes? No. No? Alas, no. Okay, well, um, so there's been quite a co- complaints about that f- f- on two counts, being that um, Evangeline Lilly's character wasn't particularly important to the story and that uh, there's kind of a romance that comes out of nowhere. There's not really any chemistry and they don't really build up that that romantic tension until you know oh yeah well we're kissing because they're about to go and fight a big battle because you know apparently that's all we do that's what you do yeah um (laughs) but then there's the other um what i'm thinking about is the fact that the next story is kind of a story of the both of them so the first one maybe i'm just making excuses but the first one is kind of just giving it, it it was his story but she's there and then she's going to become more important later on. And I'm wondering if that is maybe, and uh, how do I phrase this, you know, a good enough reason to have a peripheral, potentially unnecessary character in a story if they're going to then be more important later on. Can I ask, is that the, um, <clears throat> is Ant-Man a film or is it a TV series? It's a film. Because I was thinking... 
about um i don't know if this is because my husband's been watching it or whether it's a valid point but i was thinking about the west wing with um martin sheen and his his wife who sort of does come to play a larger role later on and kind of gets brought in uh, not exactly the love interest but we talk about spouses and wives and she comes in every now and again and then obviously in later you know in later series gets built up and has more of a role and you can do that in tv series to a way that you can't do it in um movies so i think i think maybe in your ant-man example i think it is right to bring her in at the beginning because you've kind of you've got to have her there and it's very difficult when you've got a movie to kind of have someone who's going to be a big thing in the sequel and knows they're going to be a big thing in the sequel to kind of sideline them in the first one. I don't necessarily think that's anything to do with plot. I think that's probably to do with Hollywood politics. Because if you say to someone, oh, well, you know, we've got this series lined up and in like from episode 20 to 24, you're going to be in it pretty much constantly. But at the beginning, we're just going to have you in every now and again. You kind of don't mind signing up to that so much. Whereas if it's a film, it's like, well, just come in for a few scenes now. And then in the next film, we'll feature you prominently, you know, unless it's one of these sort of sort of shock um, uh, blockbusters that you don't really expect. Uh, I think that might be to do perhaps more with casting than to do with, you know, plot and and what's good for the story, perhaps. What are some of your uh, best and worst examples of uh, this token romance? Well, we've already got, what was it, Lady Hawk and the Princess Bride up there, wasn't it? Um, Mm -hmm. I quite like Plunkton McLean. I thought that um, that the young girl in that, oh, help me out here. I want to call her Arwen and that's totally not right. <laughs> I, I don't even know, I don't know Plunkett McCain, McLean. Oh, don't you? It uh, is um, a highwayman story um, and it stars uh, the girl who played Arwen uh, as Liv the... Liv Tyler. Thank you, the love interest. Um, and she is quite subtle um, but she has quite a strong role and she's quite antagonizing towards the, the villain. And you kind of, I kind of get the impression that if she was allowed to within the confines of the society, she probably would have kicked his ass. But there's something about skirts of that size and that weight that really stop you giving a man a good swift, swift kick to, uh, to where it will hurt the most. Um, but she, I think she's a really good character that spends a lot of the time on her own rather than interacting with the um, two main title characters Plunkett and McLean but I still think she has a really good storyline and, and manages to, to kick a good bit of ass on the way so I really like her and I quite like Moulin Rouge as well I thought that was a good balance between um, having a proper romance love story that just interwove everything uh, and if I had to give worse love interests it's, it's got to be the Bond movies as much as I love them token love interests abound in all the Bond movies I have to say well yeah um, that's kind of the point <laughs> But that is kind of the point, yeah. I kind of feel like they should be let off because they're just, you know, (laughs) Bond movies. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I didn't really approve when they turned all serious. I was like, come on. You can't do the serious thing. It's just, you know, he's just a long-running joke in a way. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Um, Getting back to favourites. I always like to big up um, books that I'm currently reading or have just And today I finished a really remarkable YA book, which is so unlike current YA. And it's probably because it was published in 2007. Um, (laughs) So it's not like uh, it's not picking up on any of this. There's a lot of uh, we've talked into it in a different episode about um, YA dystopias and love interests in YA dystopias and how it actually ends up revolving around. I think I know, Charlotte, that's one of your 
kind of pet hates that this you know dystopian YA things that they end up kind of having this love interest being all pervasive and and absolutely plot hinging and stuff well this book is it's called In Castle On by Catherine Fisher have you read it guys I haven't but I'm making a note of it as you talk you must read it it's wonderful um it's completely it is it is dystopian you could definitely call it dystopian um but it's a wonderful blend of fantasy and dystopia and it is it's published by hodder children's um and it is wonderful all of the characters that it's the story is mostly split between um the kind of what you probably would call the protagonist finn and claudia and and but both of them are of have equal merit in the story and also they're supported by other characters all of whom are it's difficult to say that they you know they they it, it, she really plays with the chosen one trope so i think i i urge charlotte particularly you who doesn't like the chosen one trope to have a go at this one because it's kind of like um she transcends the trope by giving all of her characters and all of their stories equal validity which is really unusual in ya especially when there's this current trend to kind of jump on the the romance bandwagon and make the romance so you know completely essential to the story or or turn or you know <laughs> talking about what we were doing now or or to make it actually so glass thin that it's you know being shoehorned in there it seems to be one kind of or the other but this was such a beautifully balanced work it actually reminded me a bit of francis harding uh, in its complexity um and it's it obviously and it deals with themes of imprisonment and the self and it's all it's very very clever for for what you would say a book it doesn't even particularly strike me as for children in you know um in that way so uh, i think that uh, out of you know all the examples i could probably pick this 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 book has really left a a real imprint on me and i thought it was so clever the way that she doesn't she could easily have the sign she could easily have made it a love story and she chose not to and that was wonderful just jumping on your uh, name drop there, Francis Harding, our mutual friend, I have to say that uh, the lie tree has made my list of excellent examples of good love interests in the book category, because um, I thought, if you haven't read it, go away and read it, absolutely fantastic. I thought that the sort of blossoming romance between the two, um, between the young girl and the young boy in it, I thought it was very well done because it was clear there was something there, but it was never made explicit. It was always very subtle and it didn't have them getting together at the end, which I thought was was quite a nice way because, I mean, how many of us get together with the kids that we, you know, fall in love with in, in the playground and things like that, you know, when you're literally that young. And I thought that was a really nice way of kind of having a love interest aspect and putting it into a, a, short, a sort of a, middle is it middle grade I suppose the lie treats because it's not really a children's book is it because it's quite dark but I wouldn't go so far as to say it was YA I'd say it was probably middle grade to to lower YA if I had to put a, a sort of a category on it and I just thought that was really really well done so well done Francis we know we love you anyway but uh, I think that one definitely deserves a mention. Um, conversely what I didn't uh, particularly enjoy was um, I know uh, Megan is probably shares this opinion at the fire sermon um, I I didn't like Kip I didn't like the main character Cassandra either <laughs> sorry but uh, to be brutally honest but I really didn't their whole romance left me cold and I thought he was quite a good example of a male 
um, love interest being shoehorned in for the sake of having a love interest. It was a classic example of let's fall in love while on the journey. The journey is such that we must fall in love because it's obviously very harrowing and terrible. You know, those kind of tropes. And and it, I, I haven't got a problem with that trope as long as it's done convincingly. I just was so cold. This left me so cold, that romance. I have felt absolutely nothing for the characters and especially his character. And I think the problem with it is that she kind of got around the, 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 the whole... Um, you know, non-fleshing out of character by by giving him no backstory whatsoever, actually writing that into the plot so that he wakes up without any backstory. He has no idea who he is, um, which is a bit tricksy, admittedly, to try and get around that. But I, it's to try and get around the flashing out, I'm saying. But I, I, I don't know. I don't know if Megan agrees with that. I just felt that it was just a poor example of, of shoehorning a romance in where it was really not needed. No, I, I agree with you 100% on that one. I thought that that was very poor. And I think uh, another example of a male who is completely unnecessary, but in the film category, and while this film had many, many things wrong with it, I think this was one of them, uh, Jupiter Ascending. Ooh. Are you going to diss Sean Bean? Because, you know, that's not allowed. I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) No, not Sean Bean. uh, Channing Tatum. That's okay. Who I I loved a bit, but... uh, his character was entirely pointless and unnecessary and yeah i mean obviously there was a lot more wrong with that film but uh i think that was definitely one of them well if we're talking about um ones we don't like then i was uh, whilst lucy was sorting out her microphone and pouring her gin i was uh, chatting to <laughs> megan about uh, <laughs> sorry about sarah j mars we think we pronounce it and her throne of glass which I um, downloaded on the Kindle and I got no further than chapter three, which is such a shame because it had such a promising start of a, a young woman who was clearly a very highly trained assassin, had uh, was in prison, had tried to escape several times and was being brought before the prince who had incarcerated her. And she was having all of these feelings of, you know, how much she hated him and hoping she could get a good swipe at him. And I got halfway through chapter two and got to the, she sees the the prince and then goes, Princes are not supposed to be handsome. How unfair of him to be royal and beautiful. And I'm afraid my head just hit the desk. And I went, no, but you had such a wonderful character. Now look what you're doing. I was like, no, no, it's fine. I'll persevere. And then it goes on to say, she looked at her rags, stained skin, and she couldn't suppress the twinge of shame. What a miserable state for a girl of former beauty. And I just went, that's it. I'm sorry. I think I got another two pages and then just had to give in because it suddenly went from being a really good, interesting character to clearly just being, or the main part of it being a romance. And I just, I couldn't, in my in my mind, those two characters didn't, those two, um, yeah, the characters of the lovesick girl and the, the trained assassin who has clearly been probably brutalised and um, oppressed in this prison environment. And I was like, can't you give us some build up? Why does the romance suddenly have to be there instantly, you know, and sort of love at first sight thing? And I'm like, no, no, she should hate him. She should want to kick him. Come on, where is this this passion? Why is it all suddenly descended into, oh dear, I look a bit scruffy and oh, he's so handsome. Cough, uh, cough, insta love. Insta love, yeah. But I'm, I, I'm amazed because she's a, a best selling author and won awards and, you know, everybody's. That's why, though, sorry, cheap sensationalism. 
you were, <laughs> I really hate that kind of stuff. Yeah, really. It's really obvious why it's been poured in there. It's exactly what she's doing, exactly doing it for the same reason that Holly would do it, which is to put bums on seats, to sell books. To, it's, it's, and I know, I've heard people that series before that actually there's a like almost like a different love interest in every fucking book sorry <laughs> but yeah there is and it, and then of course the whole controversy erupted over the second um you know the the, the second uh, book in her new series and of course of mist and fury i think it's called uh and that whole sex scene which is just diabolical don't go there um <laughs> you know but it's it kind of epitomizes the problem really for me that 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 actually starts to give you know YA a bad name because it, there are a lot of books like that I mean only the other day I read about another one that Hodder are pushing which is set in the same kind of thing like a court of it's like snow ice and fire red and silver yellow and blue you know like these how many diametric opposites are they going to pick like all of them are, are they're like carbon copies of each book that's gone before and that's because they're bestsellers and again this is just going into something that I harp on about which is the homogenization of the book trade that we're, we're simply, you know, mainstream publishers are just producing, they're just commissioning books, which are the same as every other book that's already sold, replete with the same problems that we're discussing right now, which are these ridiculously shoehorned in romances, which, as you said, Charlotte, have should have no you know no bearing on her character whatsoever there's no I mean it sounded like you you met two different characters in the first few chapters which clearly is is you know not the sign of a, of a good you know character development at all well exactly and I would like to to sort of say that I you know go on record as saying that I think it is perfectly possible for the brutalized hard-trained oppressed assassin to fall in love with the prince but I think the key word I'm going to say is to fall in love with the prince eventually not the first time she sees him and there's got to be some conflict first and some finding of some ground and not just about the physicality and I think that was it and I, when I was re rereading it just now there was a lot of like oh he put his hand on his thigh and uh, as he stood up and, and it was all very physical and very very much about looks and body language and I'm like well no it should be a meeting of the minds it shouldn't be this way but, you know, I must clearly be in a minority because you look on Amazon and, and this woman has has masses of, of fans and followers and five star reviews. Um, but personally, I, I just don't get it. Um, yeah, it's a bit Fifty Shades effect, though, isn't it? So. It is. And that's why we love Frances Harding so much. <laughs> yeah. Someone who actually writes with integrity and originality. Absolutely. So hard to find in this day and age. I'm, I'm very well character driven. <laughs> this episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper is being sponsored by Frances Harding this week. <laughs> So Megan, we've gone on quite a bit about our um, favourites and uh, and least favourites at <laughs> quite some length there and quite some vehemence. What about you in sort of TV, films and books? What do you find is uh, is quite good for the love interest and, and really also quite bad? Um, well, I mean, I already talked about Terminator. Um, I mean, the thing is, I found on, um, I think one of the articles I shared where they were talking about how they did thought that Spike was an unnecessary male love interest and I just have to scoff at that. <laughs> oh, me too. Me too. Um, yeah, I'm me sorry, too. but he's fantastic and just, yeah, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, well, it's because he's got a proper character, though. Yeah, he is yeah, Spike. Exactly. I mean, like, he's not just someone who flies in for the sake of being a love interest. He actually is, you know, fully fledged. 
I would like to clarify that I kind of agreed with her that I didn't like the whole bit where he gets together with Buffy and she's giving into the dark side and they have quite an unhealthy relationship. I found that very difficult and unpleasant to watch. <laughs> and I hate I, uh, sex. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but and then I, that's also part of her growth is because she's, you know, damaged at that point and then she deals with it and then he also has to deal with the aftermath of that, you know, for the entirety of the seventh season. So, again, even and, though it's unhealthy, there's... um. You know, there's there's consequences um, for their characters as well as the plot. So I I don't find that any of that is unnecessary as such. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head there when you said the entirety of the seventh season. I kind of felt like it did drag out a little bit. Um, and <laughs> like you say, it, it is a good. It's quite good uh, now that you pointed out about them being damaged and you know kind of working through it both together and separately. But I just I don't know. I just it it kind of made me cringe because it went on for quite so long and they didn't seem to be getting anywhere. They just seemed to be going in circles and and didn't seem to grow very much. Um, but I also have to say that I think in that article you were talking about that they suggested that Buffy and Faith should get together. And I was like, really? That that didn't seem... They, they seem more like sisters and that they should have been fighting side by side, not jumping into bed together. Mm. Whereas, I, you know, and they already had the um, the Willow and Tara thing which I thought was much, you know, much better done than anything you could have done with Buffy and Faith, to be honest. I think that yeah, would I thought they kind strange. of were sisters. That's just wrong. Yeah, exactly. But, but clearly, that's what uh, <laughs> that's what <laughs> the suggestion in the article was. But each their own, Ooh. I suppose. Yeah, no, I, I agree there. I don't see that. Um, but yeah, I, we've talked about quite a few that I we've all liked. Um, in terms of what we don't like, I mean, I'm. Uh, this is where I'm the Star Trek purist, and I think it's been well established that I do not like the new Star Trek films. Um, but the whole Spock Uhura thing, I just don't get it. First of all, there was never any kind of, you know, in terms of the original series, I don't understand why they wanted to do that, especially for Spock as a character. Um, generally their relationship adds nothing to the plot and it's just all a bit pointless and it adds to kind of, uh, you know, Ahura becomes like this kind of a little bit whiny sometimes and, you know, she she kind of, it turns what was a strong character into almost the token love interest and that is really appalling for a character like Ahura when... You know, she was so important, not just to, you know, Star Trek as a whole, but, you know, to having not only African-American actors on a main TV show, but a woman of colour in a position of power. She was a communications officer on the bridge, so she was a high-ranking officer. And to then have her kind of relegated to this kind of love interest piece is just... Yeah, it gets me the wrong way. That's just terrible. (laughs) So what did you think of the um, Uhura and Scotty romance they had? Was it in Star Trek V? Oh, well, yeah, that was terrible too, but that... (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, just just to wrap up, I quite liked the example um, from the King Kong movie with Peter Jackson um, having sort of the the in-universe reference to... Um, this kind of token romance thing where um, one of the characters says, I go out there and I sweat blood to make an ideal picture and then the critics say, if this picture had a love interest, it would gross twice as much. Grr. 
<laughs> I think we can safely say on everything we've discussed that that's probably the attitude of Hollywood. Whether it's the attitude of the audiences is perhaps another matter, but I think definitely Hollywood probably has a lot of meetings where they go, can you put mm-hmm. love interest in? Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Absolutely. And it's pervaded down through the other genres to a kind of grassroots level now i think that they're just by people asking questions like does this book have a love interest you know before they even embark on page one is indicative of of the hollywood effect well i think that wraps us up for tonight we at breaking the glass slipper don't think that you should have token romance whether or not anybody else will agree with us is yet to be seen romance is for life not just for christmas Romance is for life, not just for genre. (laughs) Not just for genre. Perfect. (laughs) Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.